0: Well, it is good to see you this morning, and if we don't know each other, my name is Brian, I'm the pastor here at Mount Hope in Belmont, and last Sunday, our family was not here because we were able to do something this last week that we haven't been able to do over the last three years, and that is we got away to a place we usually like to go every summer, a place called Camp of the Woods, it's a Christian family camp up in upstate New York, and uh, so it's a four-hour drive away Which, if you grew up in Massachusetts, seems like an eternity, and if you literally grew up anywhere else in the country, seems like a reasonable amount of time to drive. And so we took that drive up to up to northern um, New York, and we had a we had a really great week. And one of the things they do at that camp every single week is they have a sports emphasis for the kids. Uh, By the way, I'll just mention we have no idea what's going on with our lights, but we're just going to roll through it. All right, this is can you pay attention? Uh, through the distractions. That's what this is today. Uh, so th- they do a sports emphasis for the kids every single week. And uh, Lori and I were a little, were excited about this because every other year we've gone, our kids have been little. They weren't old enough to participate. But now we had two kids that were old enough to participate, and they've started to play sports in town. And so usually it's basketball or football or volleyball or soccer or something like that. And so we were excited, so we looked when we got there at the sports emphasis for the week, and it was floor hockey. And we thought, floor hockey? That's a, that's a weird emphasis for an entire week. So we said to our kids, like, we'll, just, we'll just skip the sports emphasis, and you can, you can do something else. So then we were sitting in uh, the first service of the week, and the director of the camp was up front in front of everyone, and he said, He said, we're excited to have floor hockey emphasis this week, and to lead our floor hockey emphasis is, he said, stand up. And this gentleman, stand up. He said, is Troy Looney, two-time Stanley Cup champion, who played for the Pittsburgh Penguins for 12 years and played with Mario Lemieux Lemieux and Yamir Yager and was part of those great Penguins teams, he's going to be leading the camp. And then we got our kids from their kids program. We said, good news, you're back in floor hockey. All right? So they went for the first day. They went for the first day, and my wife went to pick Jackson. He's in the front row here, uh, staying from kids' ministry just for this story. He, Lori went to pick him up, and Jackson walked out with a giant smile on his face, and he held up this towel. And if you look at the towel, you can see the teeth of the hockey player. And if you look at Jackson's mouth right now, at seven years old, his mouth looks almost exactly the same. And so Jackson came out smiling, holding up this towel. And Lori said, where did you get that towel? And he said, I won it. And she said, what for? And he said, I don't know. <laughs> and so we asked him, did you win a game? I don't know. Did, did, uh, was there a contest? I'm not sure. And he, said, he we said, well, why do you have a towel? He's like, I don't know. So Lori and I were very intrigued by this. So the next day, when he went to floor hockey camp, uh, for that uh, hour and a half, we walked up to the table where all the, the coaches were, and we said, our son came home with a towel yesterday, and we asked him why he had a towel, and uh, he didn't know. <laughs> do, you, do you know why he had a towel? And the, the teacher, her face lit up. It was actually the wife of, of the hockey player. Her face lit up, and she said, oh, I led Jackson's class. He was attentive. was attentive. He listened. He tried hard, and at the end of the day, I picked one student uh, who was doing an exceptional job to award a prize to, and that was Jackson. Now, who was smiling, right? The two of us were smiling once we heard that, right? Isn't it true? So, nice job, Jackson. You did a great job, right? Good job, bud. Isn't it true uh, that when a person who's in authority or position leaves you and entrusts you to go off by yourself and do something, it's always a good thing when they return and they find you doing what they've asked you to do. That's a good thing, right? You're in class and the teacher says, I have to leave for a few minutes. I'd like for all of you to pick up your books and to read quietly until I return. And everyone picks up their books, and then the teacher leaves, and then people start putting down their books, and they start chit-chatting, and they start writing notes, and there's paper airplanes or whatever starts happening, and your eyes stay glued to the book because you want your teacher to walk back in the room and find you doing what he or she asked you to do. It's the same, your boss goes on a business trip and says, hey, I'm not going to make the team call this week. Uh, and so I still want the team to meet, but I'm not going to make it, and then the Zoom call happens, and a couple people say, ah, I can't make the call, and you're 50-50 whether or not you're going to show up, and so you show up on the Zoom call, and all of a sudden your boss pops in, and she says, oh, I had a break in my my schedule, and so I just jumped on the team meeting, and you're so glad you're there, right? Because you're doing what she asked you to do. It's always good when someone in authority leaves and asks you to do something, and then when they come back, they find you doing what you ask them to do. It's like when you're a parent and you entrust your kids into a different place. And when you're not with them, you're saying to yourself, I hope they're being respectful and I hope they're trying and I hope they're being nice and I hope they're listening. And then when you return and find out that's the case, that's a great thing. Now, the opposite is also true, right? That when you, someone in authority gives you something to do and they return and they find you not doing that thing. Well, that's a totally different situation, isn't it? And if you've been with us over the last couple of months, actually through this whole summer, we've been walking through the parables in the Gospel of Luke, and parables are these stories that Jesus told, and they're the, these earthly stories with a, with a heavenly meaning. They teach us something about the kingdom of God, and they're usually very particular, The parables are are often not something that can be applied in any and all situations. They're usually told with one specific idea in mind, one specific teaching that Jesus has for his disciples and the crowds and for you and for me about what it looks like to follow him. And this one is no different. And I wanna suggest to you that, that many times, the best way for you to figure that out, what is it that Jesus means in his parable It's it's not that you necessarily have to have a lot of Bible training in many of these cases or or know a lot about what what the scripture says. Many times there is a verse that Luke will put in place that will tell you exactly why Jesus is saying what he's saying. And then you can kind of look around and get the context of the story because the context is so, so important. So in verse 11 of this passage that Justin just read for us, we get the context. As they heard these things, well, what are these things? We'll get back to that in just a moment. As they heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell them a parable. Why? Because he was near to the city of Jerusalem, a very important city. And because they, his followers, supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Let's take 30 seconds and put ourselves in the context. The Jewish people have been awaiting a Messiah for centuries, for generations. The followers of Jesus believe he's the Messiah that the prophets have been telling them about. And so they're following him, believing that he is going to establish the kingdom of God. And what is that going to look like? Well, right now, in this part of the world, and maybe you remember this from Western Civ class, The Romans are in charge. And the Jews are underneath the Roman Empire. And in the minds of a Jewish person at the time, many believed that when the Messiah came, he was going to overthrow the Roman Empire, overthrow whoever was in charge in that moment, that it would be a militaristic thing, and then the kingdom would be established. But Jesus has a much longer view in mind. And Jesus knows his followers. And he knows you, and he knows me. Because the truth is, many of us do great in a moment, but the journey can be tough. And Jesus knows his followers are doing great in this moment while he's with them, but there's going to be a longer journey. And he's traveling toward Jerusalem for a Passover celebration. In fact, this is the travel that's going to end up with him dead on the cross here in a little over a week. And here he is in Jericho, about 17 miles away from Jerusalem, and his followers can see the progression. They know where they're headed, and many of them are talking, and they're saying, I think this is it. I think we're going to Jerusalem. I think we're rallying the troops. I don't know how it's going to happen, but this is the moment. And Jesus knew that you and I would be sitting here 2,000 years later, still awaiting his return. And so he told them this parable about what they should do while he's away. And he tells us this parable as well. So he says in in verse 12, he says, A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. And calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas. And he said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Now there's two things, stick with me for just a moment, stick with me just for just a moment. There's two things that I want us to, to notice about this passage, all right? The, the, the king or the nobleman, I'm sorry, the nobleman, co- brings how many servants to himself? How many servants? Anyone catch it? Ten. M- many people say it, Let's say it out loud. How many servants does the king bring? He brings ten. All right, you got a ten. And he gives each of them one mina. Now a mina was about a hundred days labor. So three months of work he gives to each one of his ten servants. Now this isn't to be confused with the parable of the talents. How many of you have heard the parable of the talents? Anyone grow up in Sunday school? I heard of that one too. All right. The parable of the talents is a different parable. And I don't know about you, but when I first start reading this, I say to myself, oh yeah, this is the parable of the talents from Matthew. It's not. Because in the parable of the talents, and I'll just say this quickly if you know so we're not confused, Jesus calls, or the, the master calls three servants, and he gives them different amounts of money. To one, he gives five talents, and talent's just a large sum of money. Five, three, and one, and says, invest this until I come back. This is a different thing. This is equal. Ten servants get the same amount of money, and he says, invest this until I come back. So this is not a message about the fact that some of us have a lot and some of us have a little, and no matter what you have, you're supposed to do well with what you have. That's the parable of the talents. That's not this parable. This is a parable about something that all of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ have equally. Regardless of social status or wealth or anything else, we all have this equally. That's what this parable is about. So that's one thing that we need to notice. The second thing that's just important to notice, because it puts us in the context of what Jesus is doing with the people around him, is this idea of a nobleman going to receive a kingdom, and then a delegation following him to say, we don't want this man to rule over us. Stick with me. When Jesus was born, the leader, the Roman leader of the area was a man named Herod the Great. He was king, Herod. And if you remember, when Jesus was born, King Herod decrees that, that all the, the babies, boys under two years old, are to be put to death because he's trying to stop uh, the, this new king being born. So we're a little bit familiar with King Herod uh, in, that, in that moment. King Herod dies and he splits up his kingdom among some of his children. And a portion of his kingdom goes to a ruler, a nobleman named Archelaus. Now, Archelaus wanted to be king, like dad, but you can't just name yourself king in the Roman Empire. You have to travel to Caesar and ask for that title. So when Jesus says a nobleman went to a far country to receive a kingdom, all his listeners' ears perk up. They know this story. This has been the headlines for months, right? Jesus might as well have said, there was a conflict in Russia and Ukraine. This is something that the second he says it, every listener would say, oh, I know about that. I've heard about that. And what happens is when Archelaus goes to Caesar, a huge delegation, including some of his family members, some Jewish people, and many others go to Caesar and they speak out against him. And they say, this man's a harsh ruler. We don't like him. We don't want him ruling over us. Don't you dare give him the title king. And so Jesus says, hey, a nobleman went away to a country and to receive a kingdom. And a delegation went and said, we don't want this man to rule over us. And the people all went, we know about that. In fact, they were, many of them in that crowd were Jewish people. They didn't mind a little jab at the Roman leaders. It was really embarrassing for Archelaus that this happened. So they might have even smirked in the crowd as Jesus said that. Yeah, that guy went and thought he was going to be king. But Jesus is saying something else too. He's saying, in a little while, I'm going to go to a far off country to receive my kingdom. I'm going to die and be raised again. And then I'm going to ascend into heaven with my father where I will receive my kingdom. And while I'm gone, there will be a group of people that will say to you, my followers, we don't like this guy, and we don't want him ruling over us. And I don't know if anyone here who calls themselves a follower of Jesus feels this dynamic in the world around us, but I would say that this has happened exactly the way that Jesus has said it was going to happen, that he would go and that he would sit and he would wait to return and receive his kingdom and bring it to this earth, and while he's gone, there'd be a whole delegation of people— That would not want him to rule. That's absolutely happening. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. And Jesus says, and through this parable, I'm giving to you, I'm entrusting to you something. And I'm entrusting it to you and to you and to you. I'm not just entrusting it to the pastors and the missionaries. I'm not just entrusting it to people that have a degree. I'm entrusting it to anyone who calls themselves a follower of me. And the whole point of the parable is this. While Jesus is away, you want to know what you should be doing with your life? Jesus tells us in this parable. While Jesus is is away, you are to invest what God has entrusted to you. That's what you're to do question is, what in the world has God entrusted to you, and what does it look like for you to invest in? Do you remember verse 11? The very first phrase in verse 11, it said, as they heard these things, as they heard these things, well, what was it that they had just heard? That's the question. You know how when an animal hears a noise, and it pops up and looks? That's what should happen in our minds when we hear a phrase like that in the Bible. As they heard these things, you should stop and look, say, what things? What things have they heard? And then take a look. Because if you look back at the things they had just heard, Jesus makes it clear exactly what has been entrusted to us and what it looks like to invest it. So what just happened? Well, stop me if you maybe heard this one growing up, but I heard the story like this. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Did anyone else sing this song? He climbed up in a sycamore tree, the Lord he wanted to see. The Lord came by and said, Zacchaeus, you come down from there. There you go. For I'm going to your house today, for I'm going to your house to stay. So this story, Jesus is coming into the town of Jericho, and there's a man who is a tax collector. Tax collectors not liked by the people. They are Jewish people who collect taxes on behalf of Rome, and how do they make their money? They exploit their own people. They collect the taxes for Rome, and then whatever they can convince their people to give them on top of that, they keep it for themselves. They are not liked, not like tax people today that we love. And so Zacchaeus, who is not liked by the people, who is considered a traitor and a sinner— He's short and he can't see Jesus above the crowd, so he climbs up in the tree. And as Jesus is walking down the road, Jesus sees all of his adoring followers. He sees the religious leaders who are watching him. And then there's this sinner up in the tree. And he looks at all these people and he says, you. I want to go to your house. I'm here for you. And then he goes to Zacchaeus' house and he eats with him and the people are grumbling that Jesus is eating with such a sinner and a traitor and they don't like it at all. And Zacchaeus stands up and he has a complete change of heart. And he basically says, Jesus, I have been living for myself. But now that I've met you and that I know you, I'm living for you and for your kingdom. And all this money that I have, I'm going to pay back the people that I've wronged. And I'm going to do it even more times than what I took from them. I'm going to be generous and I'm going to build your kingdom instead of my own. And Jesus says these words. He says, today salvation has come to this house. And then he says why he's on this earth. For the Son of Man, he says in verse 10, came to seek and save the lost. And Jesus is looking at his disciples and his followers, and he's saying, do you see what just happened with Zacchaeus? Where I went to someone who was far from God, and I said, there's a God who loves you and who desires relationship with you. And guess what? You're more sinful than you ever thought possible, but there is a God who loves you more than you ever and even though there's there's evil in this world and sin has broken it all and not just the bad things that you do, but this power of sin has negatively affected everything. There is a God that loves you enough that he sent his son down to this earth to die on the cross and be raised again. And he's in this process of redeeming and restoring all things unto himself. And he invites you into relationship so that you can be a part of that process process and and we're not here just to huddle in our little our little communities with only us christians we are here to tell you too about this god who loves you jesus says you see what's just happened between me and zacchaeus i'm entrusting you with that there's your mina the gospel that's yours and he gives it to anyone who is a follower of jesus christ it's your responsibility take this gospel that you have received and to go and do what Jesus did with it, to seek and to save. Because Jesus says something else in this parable that I think is, is a little bit sobering. Quite frankly, it's, it's not necessarily something that on Sunday to Sunday we spend, the, we spend a lot of time thinking about, but Jesus brings it up here. And so we ought to think about it together. See, the reality is, there will be an accounting of how you invest the gospel that's been entrusted to you. There will be a moment when Jesus returns and he's left and he's entrusted to you and to me the gospel. And this mission of going to seek and save those who are lost. To make disciples, he says at the end of Matthew. And there will be a moment when he returns. Like the boss popping into the Zoom meeting to see who's around, or the teacher coming back into the classroom to see who's reading. And the question will be, Will he find us? Will he find you? Will he find me investing our lives the way he's called us to into the thing that matters most? In this parable, the nobleman returns and the first servant he goes to says, hey, uh, I I took your mina and I turned it into 10 minas. And he says, that's wonderful. Be in charge of 10 cities. And the second nobleman or the second servant comes and says i turned your one minor into five minas and he says wonderful be in charge of five cities and i think one of the things that i hope we don't gloss over too quickly is that is that we can look at the return of the nobleman and say why is this so harsh and so cruel in his return but we ought not to skip over the first two Because for the first two servants, the return of the nobleman is a beautiful, joyous thing. Because they were doing exactly what the nobleman asked him to do. And so it's a good thing that he's returned. It's a a moment for celebration. And we ought not to miss that Jesus is saying, the greatest rewards that you might receive upon his return Are directly correlated with how you are investing the gospel that has been entrusted to you. That ought to challenge us. It's not an attendance chart. It's not necessarily a a balance or a scales of good deeds versus bad deeds. But there's this direct correlation between: Are you growing in Christ? And are you spreading this message to other people that there's a direct correlation between that and the rewards Jesus gives out? But there is a servant that the return of the nobleman is not the greatest thing he's ever gone through. Because he comes and he says, listen, I was afraid of you. And a couple of weeks went by, and I hadn't done anything. You know, then a month went by, and I still hadn't done anything. And then I got really scared that you were going to come back. And I thought maybe, you know, I could throw it into fantasy football. But I usually lose fantasy football, and I didn't want to give you back uh, less money than what you gave to me. And so I just, I just put it in this handkerchief. And look, I'll, I'll undo the handkerchief. Here's your mina. It's all here. You can see it. And Jesus is angry, or the, the nobleman's angry. Why didn't you do what I asked you to do? I mean, I just asked you to go and invest it. And it didn't matter if it was 10 or 5 or just a tiny bit of interest. If you had shown me some sort of effort, some sort of labor, I would have been pleased, the nobleman says. And it's the same. I think sometimes we write ourselves off and we say, well, I can't go invest this gospel, because I don't have all the answers to all the questions, and I don't know exactly what to say, and I'm not sure exactly. Jesus just went to Zacchaeus' house. He said, I want to hang out with you. I want to show you that there's a God who loves you. And there's this thing where we, where we become so afraid, and I don't know if, it's, if, this, if this servant was just afraid of the enemies of this nobleman, Maybe. Was he afraid because he knows the nobleman is a judge who, who might get upset with him if he did the wrong thing with the money? Maybe. Was he just lazy and got out, caught up in other priorities? Maybe that too. But for some reason, he didn't invest. And the nobleman was upset. Sometimes you get the question, well, does that third servant go to heaven? I'm not sure. We don't get, that's not the answer that we give in this parable. That's a a different story for a different time. That's not the point of this parable. The point is, is to ask ourselves, when Jesus returns, will he find you investing your life the way he's asked you to invest it? Jesus saves his harshest words, or the nobleman receives his harshest words for his true enemies not even for the third servant, for the enemies. That last line is not for the third servant, the one where he says, bring my enemies before me so that I might slaughter them. That is for the enemies that actively worked against him while he was gone. What does it look like to invest the gospel? What does that look like? doesn't necessarily mean that you have to go and put a milk crate on the street corner and shout at people, although God might call you to preach the gospel. But it means getting to know your neighbor who doesn't know Jesus. It means inviting people into your home, building friendships, caring for people, finding the couple that's struggling in their marriage in church and offering to babysit their kids for free so that they can spend some time together. It's like a, a inviting a, a refugee family in our neighborhood to come and share their, their what they make for a business, for their candy with us after church on a Sunday like we did a couple weeks ago. It involves supporting uh, the missionaries and, and ministries of, of people that are going out and spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. There's so many different ways that we can be involved in investing our lives into this gospel that Jesus has given us. But the worst thing that we could do is just sit on it. And sitting on it could just look like never mentioning it to anyone, but it could also look like insulating ourselves so much that we have no contact with the outside world. That we keep our inner circle so tight that all we talk to are the church people that we never have the contact that God calls us to have, to show the love that God calls us to show. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward as we, as we close this morning. And as I thought about this sermon, I got thinking about something that I used to do quite often as a, as a kid. There was a, a period of a few years growing up where my dad... Uh, would have to fly to San Francisco every single week for business. So he'd spend one week at home, and then he'd get on a plane, and he'd have to go uh, to San Francisco for a week, and and he did that for years. But one of the things that became a tradition in our house is that on, I don't remember if it was Thursday night or Friday night, but whenever he was coming home, uh, my, my mom would, we'd change into our pajamas, and we'd go and we'd pick my dad up from the airport. And so I, I remember doing this because you could you could uh, walk right into the airport, and some of you aren't even going to believe this is true, but you could actually go right up to the gate door and welcome people as they came off the plane. Does anyone else remember doing this? So I remember when we were kids, sometimes we'd make signs, and we would put on our pajamas, and then we'd go into the airport. I think it was like 50 cents to park at the airport. That's how old I am. And we would go in, and we would walk all the way up. You go through security. It was very easy back then. You walk through security, and you go right up to the jetway, and as people are coming off the plane, we were there to meet my dad. Now, week in and week out, My feelings about that airport pickup could be very, very different because I knew that my dad was going to come off the jetway and he was going to look at my mom and say he was happy to see her, and then he was going to ask one question that would determine how my weekend went. He would come off the jetway and he would hug my mom and he would say, "How were the kids. And sometimes I knew that my mom would look at, at him and say, the kids were great. It was a great week. And those were the weeks that I was super excited for the airport pickup. And I would make the sign, and I'd get my PJs on, and I'd go, and I'd stand at the gate. My dad would come out, and we'd run up and give him a big hug. And sometimes he'd have a gift. I, I had all these cable car toys as a kid, you know, all these, all these things that he would, uh, you know, pick up at the airport gift shop. Plenty of San Francisco 49ers, Joe Montana t-shirts, all that kind of stuff. And, and but then there were weeks. My sisters never had this problem. It was just me. But there were weeks that I knew I had not lived up to how I should have lived while he was away. I was a tough kid sometimes. And I'd talk back, or I didn't do what I was supposed to do, or I just didn't want to go to school. he'd come off that jetway. He'd say, how are the kids? My mom would say, uh, we could talk later, but it was kind of a tough week. And he didn't even look at my sisters, just looked right at me. <laughs> and I knew we were going to have some talks. You know, there's going to be a day that Jesus returns. He's coming back. And if he doesn't come back while you and I are alive, we will see him face to face, and he's going to ask. How are the kids doing? How are the kids doing with everything I've entrusted them with? And whether or not we are excited to meet him face-to-face and be embraced by him, or we need to be fearful of that moment has everything to do with whether or not we've received this gospel and whether or not we are investing it the way he has called us to. So I want to encourage you today, Christian, follower of Jesus, how are you doing? Invest what God has entrusted to you. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your goodness this morning. We thank you for the truth of your love for us for the salvation you provide through Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray for the person in this room this morning who has not yet experienced relationship with you, who has not yet experienced the salvation that comes through knowing you. God, I pray that today would be the day they open up their heart and put their trust in you. And Lord, I pray for those of us that do know your truth, that have your gospel. Lord, I can think of all different ways that I have not done well in investing what you've entrusted to me. But Lord, help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to be able to go out into this world and to be light in the darkness and to talk about the love that you, a loving God, has for each and every person you've created. Help us to live that out well so that others would come to know you. I'd encourage you right now to think of one person, just one, who's the classmate or the coworker or the family member that you are going to invest the gospel in this week. By name, right now. Help us, Lord. Lord, thank you that we can trust that when we invest what you have given to us, it will not come back empty. So we trust you today in Jesus' name. You stand with us and let's close our time together with this song.